0: Welcome to the Rooted Conference podcast. This podcast features main talks and workshops from Rooted's annual conferences. Find more information about our annual conference at rootedministry.com. This talk was recorded at the Rooted 2022 conference in Kansas City.
1: I'm really excited to be here with you guys today. Um, as Skylar said, this is really fun for me because this is my home church. So this is where I get to minister to people day in and day out. It's where I get to do right now. I am working with the groups I'm here at our church and women's, but I also have just started helping again with our students and kind of leading in that area. And so it is such a joy to my heart to be with you guys. Um, I don't know if any of you are similar to me, but I love books. So obviously you can tell Bible story. This is what this is about, but I love books. I love literature. One of my favorite books is the classic where Alice in Wonderland came out of called Through the Looking Glass by Lewis Carroll. If any of you've read that, Um, there's a quote in there. This is when Humpty Dumpty, the character of Humpty Dumpty, is with Alice and they're having a little bit of an argument. And then Humpty Dumpty says, there's glory for you. I don't know what you mean by glory, Alice said. Humpty smiled contemptuously. Of course you don't until I tell you. I meant there's a nice knockdown argument for you. But glory doesn't mean a nice knockdown argument, Alice objected. When I use the word, Humpty Dumpty said in a rather scornful tone, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. The question is, said Alice, whether you can make words mean so many different things. The question is, said Humpty Dumpty, who is to be the master? That's all. Now, if there's something that, doesn't, that describes youth ministry to a T, I feel like it is this scene right here. How many times have you been with your students and they say words like sus that they just made up and apparently it means something that it never meant before? Or they switch it around. Did you guys know? I mean, probably you do. The word mid is now a, like a not bad word, but like it means basically that it's lame or that it's basic. So when we call our I don't want to I probably shouldn't do this. Like you call your services midweek, um, but hopefully none of you do. I apologize if I just brought you down on that. Um, but they, they basically are operating in this thing where there is um, one of my favorite poets has a line that says, "Words create worlds." Now, if we as believers know that to be true, We are the first ones that do, right? Because we see in Genesis 1 that literally God spoke existence into being. He spoke the world into being. So words are actually extremely powerful. They, I mean, we could go through a whole narrative, theological narrative of the scriptures to show us that our words matter, that our words can either bring down our brothers or sisters or build them up. Like Our words have impact and words create worlds. So I can give you an example of this. As Skylar said, I used to live overseas. So right after college, I spent a couple of years serving with a church plant in Central Asia um, in a Muslim context, and I loved it, absolutely loved it. But one of the things that I came to learn very quickly is that if you guys have had much interaction with the Muslim religion, you would know this, that we actually share a lot of similarities, right? We share a lot. We actually come from the the same basic story. Um, And so then a lot of our words are shared. So I remember being with my friend. um, I'm just going to call her R um, for her sake, but had a really, really good friend. Um, Her name was R and she and I would meet up all the time. And so in the country that I was serving in, um, it was actually a little bit more of a nominal area. So there wasn't Most people who were Muslim, they were Muslim because, and they would tell you, like, I'm Muslim because of where I was born or because of my family. They didn't know much about their faith. However, R grew up in what I would call basically a um, Islamic seminary school. So, you know, like a Catholic high school, like basically that was the kind of high school she had. So she was very well acquainted with the Quran, with her faith, with the things um, that, with why they did the things that they did. So she was one of my favorite people to talk to because she was very open, wanted to have the conversations about religion and about faith. But what I quickly realized was everything that I had in my tool belt as far as sharing the gospel was not working the way it once did. Because if I said the word salvation, she would hear the word salvation, but it meant something entirely different. If I said the word grace, she actually knew the word grace it meant something entirely different. If I said the word Jesus, she knew Jesus. Jesus is in the Quran. They're asked to read the scriptures. But to her, Jesus is a very different person. So I realized quickly that the things that I had, I couldn't even use because we weren't starting on the same foundation. Um, And so when we would have these conversations, I realized, hey, the, the best thing that I can do While, yes, I want to give her the truths of the gospel, I want to be very explicit about what the scriptures say, the best way that I could communicate with her was asking her if I could share a story. And I would share a story from the scriptures with her, and that would be where we could relate because we came down to a relational level. Now, this wasn't something that I had learned on my own, and I want to give you guys a little practical tools on this, but this is where I want to take us. So I, I had those two years overseas, this was like my main way of sharing the gospel with my Muslim friends was through storing the Bible to them. And then if for the ones that did come to faith, this is how I would teach them the scriptures. Fast forward a little bit, about five years or so, and I moved to Oklahoma. I was living right outside of Oklahoma City. Anybody in here from Oklahoma? Okay. I okay. was Um before I say something bad about your culture. I'm just kidding, it's not, it's great. Um so I moved to Oklahoma City and they jokingly, I know Cameron said that like Birmingham is one of the most, um, churched cities in the Western Southern area. Um, people jokingly refer to Oklahoma as the buckle of the Bible belt. Like it's right there in the middle. Everybody there is still culturally Christian in so many ways. So I have a lot of friends that live in California and honestly, um, I was speaking with one of the church planners there and he was telling me, he's like, man, I would actually rather share the gospel and witness in California than in Oklahoma. He's like, cause at least in California, when I approach somebody on the street, we start with, Hey, they're not a believer. I am. Let's have this conversation. He's like, but you in Oklahoma first have to convince people that they're not believers before you can actually share the gospel with them. Cause it's so culturally built in. So I get there and this is kind of the culture I'm living in. Um, and about a couple of years in, we had this really, really cool moment. The Lord was just doing some fun things and, I had two girls that were about to be seniors in high school that came to faith. Both of these girls had been raised kind of in and out of the church. They had their families weren't consistent in the church, but they'd been around Christianity, and so they come um, come to faith. And they came to me and asked, "Hey, would you be willing to disciple us? Like, we we want to learn more about the scriptures. We want to learn more about God." So I was like, "Yeah, sure. That's great." So I did the thing that, um, in my mind, seemed to be the most reasonable. Um, when we talk about missions, especially in the Western culture. We're like, what's the best gospel to start with? Anybody have a guess? John. Yeah, everybody's like, we're going to start with John, right? Because John covers so many things that you want to be hit. It's, it's really um, exhaustive in it. It also gives you a really clear picture of Jesus saying who he is, right? So I was like, yeah, let's start with John. Flip it open. We get there, and I realize in the first chapter, I can't even get past the first chapter because these two girls who grew up in Oklahoma in and out of the church did not know who Abraham was. They did not know who Moses was. They'd heard the names, but when I asked them, like, hey, remind me, like, what did? why is Moses important? And they're like, I don't, don't, was he the one with the boat? Like, they had no idea who any of these characters were. And that is when, in that moment, I realized, and there's something about this generation that is different than any of the other generations that have preceded it. And maybe there's something that I learned living overseas that actually can be a really helpful tool for those in this generation. So, what I want to do before we step into giving you guys this tool and is showing you a little bit about what I've been doing over the last couple of years is I want to answer the question. Now, if you're in this workshop, you probably have already thought through this, um, but answer the question that you will probably be presented with, or you may have yourself, that I get a lot when I talk about, OK, I'm doing this because of this generation, when I use that word generation. A lot of people will push back on, well, why would we change the way that we share the gospel or change the discipleship method for a generation? Like, the gospel is the same. Why why consider it this way? So I want to give you guys a little glimpse into why I think this is really important. If you have your Bible, flip over to Matthew chapter 16. I'm just going to read us a short story from Jesus and his disciples. Okay, so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. Jesus is walking with his disciples, and it says, Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, "'Who do people say the Son of Man is?' And they said, "'Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets.' He said to them, "'But who do you say that I am?' Simon Peter replied, "'You are the Christ, the Son of the living God.' And Jesus answered him, "'Blessed are you, Simon bar for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven.'" And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, this is just a short little snippet of a moment in Jesus' life. But do you guys see what Jesus was doing there? He could have, walking with his disciples, skipped half of that conversation, right? He could have started and just been like, hey, guys, who am I? Like, tell me. Remind me who I am. Tell me who you think I am. He didn't. What was the first question he asked? Who do people say that I am? Why would he do that? Why would he take an extra step if he didn't have to? If all he was seeking was for Peter to affirm him, which obviously Peter knew who he was. I believe that the reason that Jesus was doing this is because he was helping his disciples to first see and identify the cultural stories that were around them. Because often when you... When we don't recognize the waters that we're swimming in, we can't actually identify the, tr- the lies that may be seeping into or forming or shaping our understanding. So the words that we're using might start to be formed and shaped by the cultural narratives around us and we don't even realize it. So I think that it's really important for us to know and identify what are the false stories that our students are swimming in. We have to realize that our students are being formed by more than just you and their families, right? Especially this generation. No matter what type of educational system they're in, um, the, they are swimming in the cult, uh, in a culture other than just the scriptures, right? There's a quote, um, and I knew this would happen. It was a writer for um, it was a writer for the Gospel Coalition. I didn't put his name down here, but I will I will share that with you. He said, "Information is neutral is not neutral. We are formed by what informs us. The information we absorb will eventually lead to some type of transformation." Cable news, social media, streaming sites. All of it is discipling us by what it deposits into our minds. So, yet we understand here, this is that, back to that reality of words create worlds. The things that your students are hearing, the things that your students are absorbing are creating this world or this reality that they live in. Think back to when you were a child, right? Your parents probably told you some really funny stories that they used to actually help like, guide and direct you when they knew they were trying to protect you and you wouldn't quite understand. Something as simple as making up a story as to why to not touch the stove. Instead of just saying it's hot, we know that for a kid that's not going to mean anything. So let's create a little narrative and tell them that a monster lives on the stove is going to bite you. I don't know. That's Hopefully it's not what your parents told you. But there's they would tell you things to help shape the reality around you to protect you. These are false stories. All of us have them. We're all carrying them into the places that we're going. But the reality is, While words do have the power to create worlds, all of those worlds are mere shadows of what is actually true. The only invitation that we have in this life into reality is the Bible itself, the Word of God and His Spirit, right? The Bible is actually your student's invitation into reality, into what is true and real. So as we long to invite our students into this reality, we have to know what around them is also fighting for that space. So I want to chat just briefly before giving you the tool. Again, we're going to build on this. I want to chat really briefly about some realities about Generation Z and a little bit about Alpha. So if you guys know, Generation Alpha is actually um, most of your sixth graders now. So anybody 2010 down. So yeah, we're having one generation moving out and another generation moving in. So we're in this really cool liminal space. I say cool because I do think it's a really special time to be in student ministry. So we're going to chat a little bit about Generation Z and the the little that we do know about Alpha right now. Um, And in the same way that I trained for literally months before they let me go overseas and work in a culture that was not my own. I trained for months to understand how to cross into that culture for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of what is true and real and does not change. But I trained on how to step into that place to the best of my ability and to give all that I had. So I want us to look at this generation because this is your mission field that you've been called into. This is the culture that you're stepping into and see what are some ways that we can best bring reality to bear in these false stories that are around our students, okay? Um, so let me define Generation Z for a second. So I want to be clear. When I talk about generations, when anybody does, really, generation is actually far less about the year that somebody is born and more about their worldview or experience. So if you've ever been like, man, like some of you in this room, I'm going to guess we're probably on the cusp of millennial and Gen Z and you want to be millennial because it's cooler. Um, but you like don't know you're like do i am i actually generation z am i actually millennial like what am i identity crisis welcome to our world but the reality is it's not about the year that you were born it is about the worldview or what has formed and shaped you it's about shared experiences so what i mean by that um this is how cultural analysis analysts look at generations they give years because that's how we operate in our minds right but they try to do that based off of what are the big world events that would be happening that would give a unique worldview to this group of people, and likely, if you're on these years, you're not gonna have been formed or shaped by that event. right? So think about it this way, like boomers. The thing that identifies the generation of boomers is the Kennedy assassination, the civil rights movement, and the MLK assassination. Those were huge, forming, shifting moments that happened in in their generation. Um, And when I say this, this is what really matters, is these are things that happened in their formative years in their student ministry years. Because those are the years that they are forming their own reasoning, their own (laughs) being able to analyze and to think critically, those are the years that that's happening. So Generation Z, they were, some of their big world events were the Fall of the Berlin Wall, or Generation X, did I say Z, sorry, Generation X, Fall of the Berlin Wall, the stock market decline, and Watergate. Those are some of their really big moments. Um, Because I believe there's probably several else in here, What do you think is the world view of millennials, the world shaping? 9-11, first thing that comes out. There's a lot of things in here. I'll just go ahead and tell you if you're trying to decide if you're a Gen Z or millennial. If you don't have a visceral memory of 9-11, you're Gen Z. Okay? Because for us as millennials, that formed and shaped how we saw, approached, and interacted with the world. Okay. That's a big one for us. We also had other things like Columbine shooting. Um, and we actually were actually formed by, we had a really strong, the strong economy of the 90s was something that formed us with the 2008 crash. Okay. So then with that, let me ask you guys, what do you think are some of the world shaping moments, views of Gen Z? Co- well, yes, COVID is going to be huge. Number one. So we're still uh, understanding the impact on that. COVID is massive. What are some others? iPhone. Financial crisis, yeah. So they came in. Those are actually the two starting, right? So the reason that cultural analysts um, define Generation Z as coming in toward like the years that they do is because it actually aligns with the advent of the iPhone. So we as millennials – I say we. I don't know how many of you are in here. I'm a millennial. But we as millennials were um, – Digital natives is what they referred to us as because we were like things were starting to come on. But like, I still remember sitting in my parents' living room with their big, massive computer, listening to the dial up, trying to get on AOL, and then my dad picking up the phone and yelling at him because he cut off the whole process. Um, So we were digital natives. Gen Z are, or we were, yeah, we were digital pioneers. Sorry, I'm saying this backwards. Digital pioneers and they're digital natives. They have not known a world without technology in their pocket forms and shapes who they are. Um, Gen Alpha, I think a huge one there is going to be COVID, is gonna be their massive um, introduction into their formative years. Um, and also there's a lot that we could get into. They, they come along with the advent of the iPad and the computer coming into um, our hands in a big way. So a few fast facts I wanna share with you. Gen Z, these teens. there was a study done about four or five years ago now Um, That has been updated, but they spend an average of nine hours per day in front of a screen. So that screen could be video games, TV, computer, iPhone, right? But they spend an average of nine hours in in a day. Their average attention span has gone to eight seconds which makes sense, right? Because it has shrunk with like the coming in of um, Instagram and 15 second clips. And that's just how YouTube vine. um, I never had one of those, but those are really short too. So their attention spans eight seconds. So good job to all of you guys trying to teach Gen Z. Um, Four hours on average, a student who is actively involved in church will spend about four hours a day or four hours a week in church, right? Yet they will spend an average of 63 hours a week on a screen. So you have them, at the most, if they're super active in your student ministry, four hours a week. Their, their screens have them 63 hours. Where do you think the formation is happening most? So the task for us, um, this is the interesting thing too, is that students have now, the computer is, is in our pocket, right? It's, it's literally right there. So we have also moved to this new generation where even for me, this wasn't true. Students in your ministry, you guys have probably found more often than not, before they if they come to you to ask you the deeper questions, before they come to you, they've probably already Googled it, right? We've lost this sense of the sage idea. No, we don't have to go, like I don't have to look at you as an expert in something and go to you. I can Google it and find it myself. This generation doesn't like to talk to you anyway. So like we're gonna go in our pockets and we're gonna find the answers. So the idea of us being like an expert in something has really just, doesn't it doesn't matter the same way that it did? So these are important for us. I want us to jump into a little bit of the the facts about Generation Z at, in their faith, right? So you guys probably saw on the description to this workshop, but James Emery White wrote a book um, called Meet Generation Z, and in that he defined Generation Z as the first true post-Christian generation, and what he meant by that was that they are the first generation to have been raised, in his words, without even a memory of the gospel. Now, depending on your context and where you guys come from, some of you probably feel that really deeply. Others of you are like, no, my students were like born and raised in my church. Like they know, they've heard the things. Let's go back to the beginning. The things that they've heard, do they actually understand? Are the, the stories that they can remember, or the words that they're sharing when they're talking about the gospel, do they understand? their worlds are being shaped so much by other things that the gospel is being convoluted in so many ways that we can't even understand. Um, but the reason that, that James and White says that they are raised without even memory of the gospels, because this is the first generation having done studies that the majority of them do not have, like they, they gave them questions about the faith, gave them questions about religion and they couldn't answer any of them. Like they, and it, I could get into all the stats about their parents coming out, the the entrance of the nuns and all of those things, right? But this is the first true post-Christian generation. So if the statistics about our current and upcoming youth generation are correct, then youth workers, we can no longer operate under the assumption that the students entering into our ministry have even a foundational understanding of the gospel of Jesus, of grace, of mercy. Even if they have heard the word, do they understand? Can they tell you the difference between grace and mercy? Can they tell you um, what it means that Jesus resurrected? Can they tell you how they would define salvation? So here's just a few things to note. Um, We do still see, which is a beauty, that in Generation Z, we have still about 78% of Generation Z that would identify that they believe in God. That's not to say the Christian God, but they believe in some form of a God. So still semi-religious in, they believe that there is a God. 41% still attend weekly services, would say that they attend a weekly religious service. Only 8% cite a religious leader as their role model, but they are coming into the largest category that was of religion cited for this generation in 2019 was 21% agnostic. So that's where that comes from. Um, Alan Cooperman, who is a, the Pew's director of religious research, recently released a statement where he said that there are more than four former Christians to every convert to Christianity in America. So plug for a workshop in the next round. Um, there's a deconstruction workshop happening with Barnabas Piper, um, but that has a lot to do with that cultural narrative that's out there about what it means to actually deconstruct your faith. I don't think that deconstruction has to be a bad word if they understand what it means. So this is not a shift from Christianity to other religions. This for former Christians to every convert to Christianity is an abandonment of the religious ideals altogether. So with this, Generation Z, one of the things that you'll find is that relationship supersedes any statistics or fact that I can give you, right? They are the generation coming out of the desire for community, the desire for um, something real and authentic, right? So that's why the way that we minister and share the gospel and train our students in the gospel matters because you can tell them all the truths and facts about the Bible that you want. But how often do you share with a student what Jesus says? And then they come back to you with an anecdotal response about a family member or a friend and they don't know how to reconcile those two things together because you're telling them that this is, this is what it is, but they're like, this is what I experience. So knowing all of this, this is where I want to share with you guys a tool that I've been using the last several years with my students um, that I think has been such a gift for the way I've seen them interacting with the Bible as a whole, but also in understanding the stories of the gospel So when I ask the question, how can we disciple a post-Christian generation? Maybe an old method that was developed by missionaries to disciple illiterate cultures actually holds the key to that. So let me tell you a little bit about what Bible storying is. Bible story is not something that I created. Um, It has been around for a while. It was actually first kind of brought into recognition by one of the Southern Baptist evangelical organizations as a tool or a method for sharing the scriptures and cultures that are either illiterate or just didn't have any access to the Bible, right? So how do we sh- how do we evangelize? How do we disciple if you don't have a copy of this in front of you or you can't read it? That's how this tool was was made. Um, missionaries often use Bible storying among unreached people groups. Um, and if the trend that James Emery White identified is true, then our students fit into that. Um, the International Mission Board describes ideal candidates for Bible story and when they're talking about like the ideal uh places to use Bible story, and they said it is for those who do not grow up in a culture that has been shaped in any way by the Bible. Sounds familiar, right? So, it's a simple method that draws upon individual narratives in the Bible to communicate communicate the meta narrative of scripture. So with illiterate cultures, it's a way of reading through the scriptures by telling them the stories to lay the path. Um, and then for those who don't understand um, or maybe have not been shaped or formed by the Bible, it is a way of helping them take in the larger truths of the scriptures. Um, one of the beautiful realities that the Bible speaks to us in a variety of literary genres, right? You have so many different forms. It gives us a tapestry of poetry, of prophecy, of dialogue, of narrative, narrative and more. Um, but did you know that still the most prominent genre in the scriptures is what? It's narrative. It's story. 75% of the Bible is written in story. That's 525 individual stories and I, that's, you know, everything kind of in together, so that's the whole, but there's 525 individual stories making up around 75% of the scriptures. So of course the entirety of scriptures is also just one coherent long storyline, right? So when we talk about stories, like that is the Bible. Um, the narrative compo- composition of the scripture should speak something to us about the importance of communicating the gospel through story. It's how Jesus communicated the gospel to those around him. He told parable after parable, or he reiterated the stories of Abraham or Moses or Isaac. So most often I find myself teaching students through, like for me before this, I often found myself teaching students through some creative rhetoric, right? Like what is the most persuasive point that I can put out there to convince them that this is true, Well, John Walsh, who he wrote a book called um, Story in the Bible, he says that of the 10% remaining, if you have 75%, um, there's 5% rhetoric or not 5% rhetoric. There's 5% of like other forms of genre. And then the 10% of the 25 left, only 25% of that remaining little bit is composed of analytical reasoning. So this really small chunk of the scriptures is analytical reasoning. It's not unimportant. It is so important. I would tell you to learn um, how to uh, learn deep theology, teach your students deep theology, be able to defend the hope that you have, right? But it's such a small portion of what God has given us in his word. So if if we know that to be true, what we know about Generation Z, then storytelling becomes a really invaluable tool that we have for student ministry. Okay, so what I want us to do now is you actually have those papers in front of you. Um, I realized I handed them all out, and I gave my copy away. Can I have somebody's? Thank you. Wait, I'll, give this, I'll give this back to you. Um, okay, and if you didn't get one of these, I can print off some more and keep them up there at the desk, and you guys can pick some up later. Um, but I wanted to give you—this is a practical tool, so I wanted to give you practically how does this play out in your student ministry. Um, so Bible storying, based on what we've learned about Generation Z— It can be a key for not just discipling students, but actually for equipping them to share the gospel. And that's actually been my favorite part of what I've seen in this, is the boldness that my students have gained in actually being able to share the scriptures and share the stories with their peers. Um, So it is a simple and effective way to train your students in both knowing and sharing their faith. When we use this method with more spiritually mature students. So not all these statistics about Gen Z faith is true, are true of your students, right? You have several that know the gospel, love the scriptures. So when I share this with those students, I don't necessarily walk through the full narrative as I would be in discipling students, but I use the other side. So you'll see there's two sides of this. There's one for student discipleship and one for student evangelism. So with my students who are at the place where they just really want to share their faith, I'll use the student evangelism side of this to teach them how to use their faith. And I will pull from stories. Um, I'll, I'll pull initially into stories that are a little bit more clear in their gospel bridge. So stories like Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, Jesus and the paralytic um, or parables, miracles of Jesus. So I'll, I'll walk you through that here in a second, but let me walk you through what this looks like when you're doing this with a group of students. So if you want to do this just for discipleship, hey, you know, you have a group of students, like I said, there's going to be places, especially from your teaching platform, to be able to teach them the deep theological truths of the scriptures and what that means. This is like, oh gosh, sorry. I'm all over the place. Um, This is like a small group method where you would come in and you're trying to teach your students to know the scriptures themselves. So here's an outline of what this time could look like. I'm going to go ahead and name. Bible storying can be very, um, you can do it in a lot of ways. There's a core to it. You could do it differently than this. It doesn't have to flow on this. This is how I do it. But there are a lot of ways that you can kind of mold this or shape this around the needs of your ministry. So for student discipleship, how this time would look, I'm not going to read straight through it. You guys can kind of see, but you would open up obviously in prayer. This, if you're doing it for discipleship, it does rely a commitment on your leader. So whoever your small group leader is, it's important for them to like come in ready to lead this thing. So ideally, the the formal way of Bible storying is that the, the leader would actually come into the small group having memorized the story. I know a lot of your leaders would be like, oh, I got do that every week. I mean, it's a chat, it's I think it's a good challenge to throw out to people, but I also don't think you have to fully have memorized the story. The way that I use Bible story in a lot is that I share the story, not verbatim from what the scripture said, but with a ton of accountability to the foundations and the truths of what that story is. Um, so anyways, here's you walk through. So you'd open up in, in, in the time of prayer. So I normally have the leader since they're leading this out, have them pray over the students and then open up the time. Then you tell the story. The beauty of Bible story guys is that by the end of this time, your students will have interacted with the story three times. They'll interact with the scriptures in three times. So first, Bible's closed. The leader shares the story. Whether that be having memorized it or having like memorized the core of it, they share and tell the story. And they tell the students, hey, what, what they're doing at this point, the students will get to know what this is. Listen closely because they're going to have to recite this and share as many details as they can remember from the small group leader sharing. So the leader shares. And then you retell the story. So Bible's still closed. All of the students in this group will retell the story. They can, uh, bounce off of one another, but you try to get as many of the details as you can. So you see what's happening here is you've already told them that they're going to be retelling it, so they're having to listen intently on the, like, details of the narrative. So then they retell it and they, they help with one another. Then um, this, and hear me in this, when they retell the story, it is, I wrote it here, but it's going to be messy and it's going to be done imperfectly. The goal of this time is not precise recitation, but it's continued repetition, right? So repetition is the mother of all learning. You guys have probably heard that before. As much as you can repeat this the stickier it's going to be. So it doesn't have to be perfect, but the aim of storying is for the students to repeat the story, not for the sake of memorization, but for the sake of accountability and foundation to the truth of it. So they retell it, and then the small group leader will have one of the students then open their Bible and read the story out loud. So at this point, you've interacted with the story three different times. And then after you've done that, this is when you start doing more of your traditional study of the story. So you have your students, now that they've interacted with three times, spend time digging into the text, not for the sake of a bunch of details or information, but like the leader giving them as many facts that they can about it. But this is more of like, if you know the, the coma method of Bible study, this is more of that, right? So you're looking for context, observation, meaning, application. So spend a little while letting the students just bounce off of one another. Hey, what, what are some of the details? Did you, do you guys see any of the details we missed when we retold it? What were those details? Okay, do, do anybody see anything that maybe didn't stand out to them before? Why do you think that that detail was in there? Why do you think that God told the story this way? And then spend time doing the application because what is true, right? The application part of Bible storying is the linchpin to Bible storying because just as true with all of us, the scriptures have to first do their work in us before we can actually give the story to anybody right so spending time with your students asking them to slow down and consider what does the story mean for me what is jesus calling me to how do i take this story and apply it to my life and my rhythms right so spend the time doing application that's all in the study of the story that'll be your, the chunk of your time and then at the end um, is the share the story So as you would probably guess in the context of discipleship, overseas especially, um, Bible storying was created in such a way that they always at the end of the time asked, told them, like part of their time was, hey, now that we've studied the story, who are you going to tell this story to? Like, who are you going to leave here and tell the story to? One, it was missional because as soon as you have the gospel and you're a follower of Christ, like you're called to mission. There's no this waiting in between time that we often talk about, like you're not mature yet enough to like, Go off and talk about this, you don't know enough. If you know the gospel, you know all that you need. Um, So they would ask who they're sharing it for missional sake, but again, what does that do? Means one more time this week, the students are interacting with the text because they're having to share it with somebody. So at the end of every time, you ask the students to consider the one person that they wanna share the story with before they come back next week. And then the following week, you'll start your time by who did you share that story with? In the beginning, it'll probably be often, I shared it with my mom, I shared it with my dad, I shared it with my brother. Praise God. That's awesome. I love it. And then you will start to see where maybe they get bolder as they see one another branching out and sharing it with a friend or sharing it with a neighbor. Um, And then close in prayer. So that's kind of how you would do it for discipleship. And you would build in these stories and just go over and over in time. So you could start with one of the books of the Bible and do all the narratives, or one of the books of the gospel and do all the narratives in there. I want to hit quickly on student evangelism. This one I have loved. Um, it might not be something you do right away, and it's going to be a little bit more. This is going to seem um, a little bit messier, but how good is how good is it? Right? Um, it's very similar. So, if you're doing a small group Bible storying for your context, but you have a group of maybe more mature students or students who are eager to evangelize to their their peers, do the same method. So, go through the same method of Bible storying for discipleship. But about week four or five, this is when you can do what you think. About week four or five is what I do. I usually do once a month. So we would go through three weeks of Bible story, and then on the fourth week, do this outline. Very similar. So you open up the time in prayer, but then instead of telling the story, you recall the stories. So say you've done three weeks, then you would have, spend that time having students retell the stories that they've learned over the past three weeks. This is important because for evangelism, if they're not memorizing specifically the scriptures, then we do want to hold each other accountable that we are sharing accurate truth and foundation of the stories. So it's important that you have the chance to continue to retell. So have them retell. And then at this point, the students should like have one student tell per, her, but the students should be holding each other accountable um, and saying, oh, wait, you missed this detail. Oh, wait, hold on. You, you missed that. Next, I spend a little bit of time contextualizing the story. So we spent time during the other groups applying the story to our own life. This is simply to say, hey, knowing these stories, it's another form of application, but it goes from individual to corporate. How does this story, like, how does this story help you make sense of your school? How does this story help you make sense of your peer group? Like, how would this, like, impact your friends if they were to hear this? do you think that your friends would find this story like intriguing? What would they find strange about it? Like talk about the contextualizing it into their context. Then this is my favorite part. This is a little messy, but it's still fun. Um, this is when we minister the story. So this is just a form of just like missionaries do when they practice. You know, we used to have the tracks for gospels. We'd practice the telling all the this Bible verses we have. This is kind of practicing your track, I guess, if you will. Um, but guided by the leader. You have your leader or your students take turns kind of role playing. Um, and so you could role play an actual story, maybe um, a situation that a student's going through or that a peer's going through, or you can make one up and just like role plays. Hey, I'm a new student at their school who has never been to church. My family's not religious, that's it. Like that's, that's my person. And then you go around and you take turns just having a conversation, like in front of each other, you, you have the conversation, let the students talk. And the whole point of this is for them to try to work through how do I weave an opportunity to share a story in here, and what story do I share? I have a bank of them now. I have at least three at this point. Like, which is there a story that would work best in their context? Um, and just working through that, and then letting them share. It'll be really messy. It'll be really awkward, and it'll be really, really sweet. And at the end of it, what I love is that you can kind of debrief the time with the other students and say, "Hey, what do you think?" Like. Would you guys have shared the story that she shared? Would you have shared another one of our stories? That's my favorite part because the students begin to see how more than one story can actually be applied to, different, to all these different contexts. How the Bible is not a stagnant word, but it is living and active, and that it actually works itself into every aspect of our life. It is beautiful for them to be able to start seeing that. Um... And then at the end of that time, pray through those stories. I I always use that as an opportunity to teach them how to pray the scriptures. Um, So I usually do that during our evangelism one. So like I said, those are a lot of details. You can change them up in your context, however you think best that they will work. Um, But these are just opportunities for, again, helping your students to learn and understand the narratives of the scripture. And then it's a really sweet tool for Gen Z like it has broken down a lot of barriers for my students and sharing the gospel with others. So um yeah, so I I will too, if you guys want, you're like, how do I know you said there's five hundred and twenty-five stories, all these things, what are the best ones? There's actually a website that I can um I'll tell you right now because it's not hard to write down. It's just called BibleStories.org. <laughs> I was going to be like, I should put it on a screen. I think you can handle that. BibleStories.org. Um, and it actually just gives you a, a list of a whole bunch. You can click on it and see where they are in Scripture. So you could use that. Um, you could go through Old Testament. You could go through both. Um, you can also create your own. There's a ton There's a ton of resources out there about how Bible stories is used on the mission field. So you could also apply in those contexts. But that's a really helpful bank of just stories. So. Um, yeah, I. that's kind of like the the overarching. I wanted to leave a little bit of time. We started later than we initially wanted to, but we still have some time before lunch. So I do want to leave some space to have you guys ask questions. Again, I know there's probably a lot of like, but how does this work in my particular context? Feel free to ask those because it may be the same as somebody else, but also I and will gladly talk to you guys later on too if you want to like dive deep into your particular context. Do anybody have questions?
0: Yeah, just thinking through like doing a, a mini evangelism series, mm-hmm. like four weeks or something like that. Yeah. What would be like four supreme stories? Supreme story. stories.
1: If you're talking about evangelism as in like encouraging your students towards evangelism? You're also comparing it with, with yeah, know. oh yeah, then great. So I would actually encourage you to use the stories of the apostles in the book of Acts Um, and kind of the ones that I named. I would would also probably use some of the gospel, but some of the ones that I named earlier that have really clear gospel bridges. So all stories point us to Christ, right? Every one of them does. But there are some that are a little bit more clear than others that are like, I mean, the parables are literally Jesus giving you the gospel. So um, I would do some like, I would definitely do Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. It's a really easy story. It's short. Um, and it's there's a really clear gospel bridge there. Um, I would do Jesus and the paralytic. Um that's a really clear gospel bridge as well, and it shows the power of who Jesus is, right? Like it shows who Christ is. I'd probably do Jesus and the Samaritan um, woman at the well as well. Um, that's a really clear. Especially for Gen Z, I love to start them out with stories that point to who Jesus is. Like, so it shows his power, it shows his resurrection, it shows his grace or his mercy. Um, so really any of like, even the miracles of some of the other miracles of Jesus. The wedding at Cana is a fun story for them to tell. They're like, oh, we have to talk about wine. Um, so but anything like that is is great. Yeah. yeah. So I, I would love to share um, some of the statistics uh, that you started out. Yeah. I think it really... It lends a sense of urgency to this. Yeah, I'd love to share it with like like my parent population. Um, yeah, and staff. Um, however, I don't want them to walk away. Yes, like, like desperate. And so I would love to leave them with something like. So what is, in your opinion? In your yeah, opinion, and I don't know if it came up in your research. But yeah, what's something that this generation does that's special? Yeah, that is like wow, like the boomers, millennials, like yeah. they, they did not have this, they didn't have their finger on this, but Gen Z, mm-hmm. this is what they're doing. That's really- oh, there's a, there's, there's a lot. I love that you asked that question. So some of my favorite true surrealities realities about Generation Z is that they are the most diverse generation, right? In America. So they, um, so much so that they're the first generation that if diversity isn't existent, they notice it. Right. So like that is how diverse they are, which brings in this beautiful um, context of inclusivity that has not been around in generations prior. Um, so I love that about them. They're also a generation that is fascinated with justice. Right. Um, and there's good and bad to both sides of that. But there's a lot of good to that. They are a generation that loves justice, that seeks justice, that wants justice. Um, and so there's there's a lot of beauty to that as well. And. Um, and I think, so one of the, one of the realities that technology has brought in, right, is that we have lost what I call the, we've, we've seen the death of waiting, right? We wait for nothing. Like we don't even wait in line at a restaurant anymore. We put ourselves on the app and we come when the table's ready. Um. So we've lost this, this idea of waiting, but for our students um, that has actually like brought in this beautiful reality where in student ministry, we are able to not just Where before I think people are so fascinated with like, we have to give the promise, the future promise of what is to come with the gospel, right? Like that is huge. I'm going to talk about that later. Um, But our students are actually wanting to know like, they're desperate for like, well, but what, what, what does Jesus do for me now? And I don't think that's something that other generations have asked. And that's something that other generations have needed to ask. Like they've needed to ask, but what does Jesus do for me now? Like, how is my life different now? And if we believe the gospel, then we believe that the death and resurrection has actually given us new life that has breathed into us the living kingdom that we live here and now because of the spirit in us. So I think that that's a really beautiful question that other generations haven't asked either. So yeah, yeah. Any other thoughts or questions? So you're having, talking about
0: the, telling the, the leader, telling the story yeah. the first time after they, as far as memorizing it, doing that so are you memorizing it, thinking it verse by verse, are you memorizing it by, here's the yeah. character, and you're kind of, I don't want to say rewriting it, because that sounds bad, but,
1: yeah. kind of rewriting it, telling like it telling it in your, your own words, words. First yeah, first by verse. Yeah, that's a really great question. So, um, historically with Bible storying, especially when you're going to an illiterate culture or not literate, but a culture that doesn't have access to the scriptures, you would want to memorize it and you'd want to give it to them verbatim because what is true of us always, right? Even if we're sharing about Jesus, our words are not transformative, only his are. Um, and so if a culture does not have access to the Bible, then you 100% want to memorize it. Um, with that, our students will have that right and that part of the smaller time is actually reading it verbatim out of the Bible um, so with that I don't always I just tell my leaders to memorize it as like central to the core as they can so tell, retelling it in their own words without missing any details on it um, important details so you can and if your leaders are up for the challenge I would challenge them like hey if you can memorize the story memorize it and read it to them in memory because that empowers your students too, to be like oh memorizing scripture is actually not that hard. Um, so I would encourage them to memorize it, but if they feel like they can't, like I, yeah, most of my leaders will come having just remembered the story and telling it in their own words. Yeah. Let me pray for you guys. And then, like I said, I will be around if you um, have any questions and I'll give this back to you. you go. Before I forget. Uh if you guys need them, let me know. Um, I also feel weird staying up here, but there's a microphone. So, um, All right. Let me pray for you guys. Father, we, um, God, we offer this time to you, recognizing like the representation that is in this room of churches around our country, um, and these men and women who are desperate to be faithful to the call that you have given to them to love and to disciple and to cherish students. God, I pray that this even this last hour, that you would use it to the glory of your name, like in whatever way, in whatever form it takes, whether they leave here and apply these things or whether they leave here and just like dig into these truths themselves. I just pray, God, that it would be used to your glory in their context, that I I even ask God just boldly, because I know that you can do big things, that you would do really big things in the student ministries in each one of these churches, that they would come home and see your hand at work in ways that they didn't expect because your word is living and active. It is powerful. It is sharper than a two-edged sword, God, and it will accomplish a purpose for which it was sent out. So we ask, God, that you would do what only you can do, that you would transform the lives of our students in the power of your word, that we would see students coming to life because of the gospel. That is true. And we thank you so much that your gospel is true. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.
0: If you love the conversations we're having here on this podcast, we hope you'll join us in person this November at the Rooted 2023 conference in Nashville, Tennessee. It's a full three days of a family-like setting where you'll worship, fellowship, and be equipped and encouraged for another year of ministry. We'll have main session speakers including Daniel Yang, Trillian Newbell, and Kelly Capick, 20 fantastic workshops from pastors, theologians, counselors like Mike McGarry and Sissy Goff, and music led by Sandra McCracken, the Lipscomb University Gospel Choir, and more. Join us today at rootedministry.com conference or click the link in the show notes. Don't forget to sign up before September 15th before prices increase. Again, that's rootedministry.com slash conference.